0: Well, thank you for worshiping again with us this morning. Uh, Grateful that we can do this, now that we can gather together uh, virtually in some way, shape, or form. And so thank you for uh, doing this with us together. Wanted to note one thing before we open the word together. Uh, If you are newer to our church, uh, next Sunday, weather permitting, on February 7th, we're going to start what we call a First Steps class, it'll meet in one of the adult classrooms on the left side of the church building as you enter in, and it's going to be at 9 o'clock each of the next three Sundays. And it's a class to help you get acclimated to the church, meet some other folks who are new, uh, learn about pathways towards uh, being involved in community in the church and being involved in service as well. And so I uh, hope that you can join us for that and look forward to having you uh, participate in that class. But if you have a copy of the scriptures there at uh, your home, would encourage you to open it up and turn to the book of First Samuel chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to open up and, and read together here in just a moment. Um, but we come this morning to a, a point in our series we've been calling Wayposts, where we're going to be talking about early adolescence, the early teenage years, middle school years if you want to think of it that way. And any of us who have lived through that age period or been around people who have lived through it or are, are living through it now, uh, we know that adolescence is a time of immense change. There's all sorts of things that are changing in the life of a teenager. Uh, They're physically changing, socially changing, intellectually changing. All sorts of change is going on. And so it's no surprise as we kind of do a panorama of different spiritual communities around the world and even in our own uh, country, our own own community here, that it's very common for those groups or churches uh, to have a rite of passage, to have some sort of time or an event or a class, some sort of time where a young person moves in the sight of the congregation or the gathering from childhood to adulthood. Uh, to try to honor and recognize that shift. In the Jewish faith, for example, there's something you may have heard of, even some of you kids may have heard of, called a bar mitzvah for boys or a bat mitzvah for girls. And what that is, is when a boy turns 13 or when a girl turns 12, uh, they have this event to recognize the transition of that boy into manhood or that girl into womanhood. And what bar mitzvah means, it means son of commandment. And bat mitzvah means daughter of commandment. And what happens then after that event or really at that event is that that young person is now viewed as a full member of their spiritual community. Uh, Prior to it, they're viewed as being under the oversight of their mom and dad or whoever else is caring for them and their family. Um, But after it, they're viewed as a full member who has responsibilities to everybody else and who has certain rights, uh, just like everybody else does, even the oldest amongst their spiritual community. But it's not just the Jewish faith. Even in Christian circles, some of you may know friends or maybe you grew up in a church uh, yourself that has something called confirmation. So in different denominations, uh, Churches will have a class that they run uh, boys and girls through to make sure that they've learned certain things from Scripture. They'll do interviews of them to see what they believe and if they really trust in Christ. And then they will confirm that child into full membership within that church and within that spiritual community. And the question is, even as you look around at other religions altogether, they have things like this. The question is, why is that so common? Why is that somewhat a universal thing that that faith communities do? Uh, The Jewish people aren't commanded to do that in the scriptures of the Old Testament, churches uh, that trust in the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we're not commanded to do those things in the scriptures. So why do we do them? I I think it's because we all know that a child has to come to a point in time where the things that he or she has been taught as a boy, taught as a girl, that they have to start to believe those things themselves. That they're not just handed to them and say, here you go, but where they have to choose to internalize, and that's the language we're going to use today as we look at this text. They have to internalize the beliefs that have been given to them and start to say, I believe these things. I trust in this God. I want to live in this way. Not just because mom and dad do, not just because grandma and grandpa do, but because I choose to. We've been going through this series called Wayposts the last few weeks, and if you haven't gotten to be with us for it, it's okay. You can jump in with us. We're about halfway through. But what we've been doing is we've been trying to visualize the development of a child from infancy up to adulthood as a spiritual trail of sorts. Uh, that we, we think of certain marks along the way where there's turns that need to be made. There's things that need to, to be taught to a child at particular stages of life. and we, We've come up with six of them that all start with an I, and the first one we looked at a few weeks back we called Incubate. And thinking about the youngest kids among us, infants especially, as they enter into our world, we have the opportunity to do what we called Incubate teach them the safety of the gospel by the way that we care for them, the way we change their diapers, the way we wake up at night with them, the way that we feed them and, and, and care for them. We get to show them what God the Father's care is like, uh, that, that they don't do anything to earn that from us, but we give it to them. And so we paint a picture before they even know it of what the safety of the gospel is. Is like And then a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at the second waypost, that second turn in the life of a child, and we called it instruct. And we were talking that Sunday about toddlers and preschoolers and how important it is for us in that early stage of life to teach them their need of the gospel. Um, by, by having rules and instruction for them, guidelines that they have to follow, we want to call them to obey God and live the way he's called them to live, but also to realize their inability to do that. And so through Loving discipline to help them realize they need forgiveness. That they need God's mercy just as they need mom and dad's mercy. And then last Sunday we saw our third way post that we called Inform. And What we talked about in those grade school years uh, was that we need to teach children the story of the gospel, uh, that we need to get the scriptures into their minds and into their hearts, not just know that they need forgiveness, but to see how forgiveness can be provided, how they can be reconciled to God through the person and the work of Jesus. And so today we come to the fourth one, the, uh, the early adolescence period, middle school years. Uh, and we we're going to call this fourth waypost internalization. That's a longer I word, uh, more syllables there, but we're calling it internalization. And what we're gonna, how we're going to phrase this uh, is that we're going to say we need to teach children at this stage to internalize the truth of the gospel, to take what was outside of them, what was just handed to them um, by those, this one and on, thinking what the child needs to do on their own, the, the things that they need to actively start taking responsibility for themselves so as we come to Waypost 4 today, I would encourage us, if we're going to use that image of a spiritual trail, to think of this as being a fork in the trail, so to speak. There's some trails when you come to them that it's not just one way to turn, but there's two ways that you could go. And this is the waypost that is like that, where children need to be brought to a point where they are called to either believe what they've been told or to reject what they've been told. Uh, And we want them, obviously, to believe and to follow down the path with us. And so we're going to turn to this text today, 1 Samuel 3. I'm going to read it in just a moment, the first 10 verses here, but I want you to know where we're dropping into the story of the Bible. Because some of you may be familiar with this story, some of you may not. Um, But where we are in the story of the Bible as we drop in here is this is after God has rescued his people of Israel out of Egypt and he brought them into the promised land. And they lived for quite some time, generation upon generation, through this time called the Judges. Uh, There's a book of the Bible you can read through but it was kind of this downward spiral unfortunately of God's people uh, where they were becoming disobedient and God would rescue them they'd be disobedient and that book of the Bible even ended by the author saying in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes quite a sad way to end the book that that comes right before this one. But we're going to see as we read 1 Samuel 3 is that the the Israelite people, the Jewish people had a a bigger problem than just there being no king in Israel. Uh, It was that they didn't have a good priest and they didn't have prophets uh, who were speaking either. But God was about to do something in the life of this young boy that we're going to read about where he was actually going to finally provide them with some of the leadership that they so badly needed. And, And we're Going to see that, like many good stories, this one, the story of God giving a leader, is going to start with an an unassuming young boy who's living in relative obscurity, uh, who other people may not have known, a boy named Samuel. And we're going to learn about the time in his life where he came to that fork in the trail and he had to decide if he was going to believe what he'd been taught or if he was going to turn away. So I want to read this for you, 1 Samuel 3, verses 1 through 10. So I'd encourage you to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. Kids, if you're not Old enough to read yet listen in uh, and, and follow along uh, just by listening but this is what the author recorded for us now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days there was no frequent vision at that time Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see was lying down in his own place Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. This is the word of God. I want to un- unpack this text in just two simple headings today that I'm going to call Samuel's childhood and Samuel's conversion. Uh, I want to start in the first couple verses here and make sure that we know uh, what had led up to this in Samuel's life specifically, what his childhood had been like. We don't know exactly how old he was here, but we do know from reading the first couple chapters and even reading these first few verses uh, from today's text that Samuel's life as a child was kind of one, uh, it was a mixed bag of some blessing, uh, but some brokenness as well. Uh, You see right at the start there, it says, "...now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli." If you don't know this story, the basic gist of what has happened here is that Samuel, this boy, was actually the foster son of Eli. Uh, Samuel's biological mother, the woman who had given birth to him, her name was Hannah, and she had been barren. She hadn't been able to have children uh, for years, and she had prayed and prayed and prayed for a son, and God had finally provided her a son. And she had promised God if he would provide her with a son provide her and her husband with a son, that, that they would give him back to God, that they would let him have his entire life ahead of him, be of serving God and, and doing the work of God. And so she had come good on that word, that, that promise she had made to God, and she had taken him uh, to this man, Eli. Uh, to live with him and to to work with him because Eli was the priest of the nation of Israel at this time. Uh, He was the one who had been entrusted at this point in time with the oversight of what was called the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, this box, this uh, glorious box that would have had the Ten Commandments in it and Moses's staff and these, these special things and where God's presence was to be. He was given oversight of that and even of the building where it was resting at that time at a place called Shiloh. So Samuel, this boy, goes and lives with him and he ministers with him. He works with Eli day by day, month by month, year by year as a boy. Uh, And Eli had two sons as well, two of his own sons who would have been older than Samuel. And so Samuel would have seen them uh, living and, and working with Eli as well, so Samuel grew up around this. That was his life: was being around the temple, uh, being around the Ark of the Covenant, being around the priests, seeing these sacrifices and offerings and all these things. Seems like there would be no better place for a child to be, right? But verse one also says that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. If you read a little bit about Samuel's life, you see that those sons of Eli that he would have had older than him to potentially look up to were not worthy of looking up to. Uh, those sons, they defied their dad. They they would things, and Eli, this man, uh, this priest, was just letting it happen, just letting it take place. This was probably not actually what Hannah had imagined for the life of her son, of the things that he would see, the things he would grow up around. But Samuel, you see, even in today's text, he was different from those sons of Eli. He actually listened to the priest, Eli. He would do what he said. He would be obedient to him. He was humble. He was serving God there at the temple. And so this story then unfolds in verse 4, or actually verse 3 and following, Uh, these Eli has gone to sleep this night. He's starting to fall asleep in his room. We don't know the exact arrangement and the layout of where they lived. But he was falling asleep, this aging Eli. uh, And he's so aged at this point, he can't hardly even see. He's falling asleep. Samuel is falling asleep as well. You see in verse 3, he was probably laying uh, nearby that Ark of the Covenant, supposed to take care of the, the lamp of oil that would have kept burning through the night. So he was nearby the Ark of God. And he's within earshot of Eli, right? So he hears, uh, as as this scene starts to unfold, he hears uh, this this voice come to him, right? He hears this voice start to to say, Samuel, Samuel. But before we get to that, I want to point one detail out to you that could get lost in this text. It's going to be very important before we unfold everything that happened. And that is verse 7. This is a surprising note. In verse 7 it says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And so that is important for us to know, for all the closeness of Samuel to the things of God, to the activities of God, to the priest of God, to the ark of God, he still did not know God. He didn't know God himself. He had become very familiar, as we're going to see, with the voice of Eli and doing what Eli said to do, but he was not familiar with the voice of God and and the obedience that God would call him to himself. And we see in this text, and as we get into the story, we see here in Samuel's own life the need to internalize what he had been taught as a boy. That hadn't yet happened yet, it seems. He had been taught all these things. He had seen all these things. He'd been around all of these things, but he did not yet know God himself. And the question I would ask for us and I would want us to seriously consider is how many of the children in our lives, how many of the children in our families, how many children in our church are in the same situation that Samuel was as he laid down that night to go to sleep? that they've been around the things of God, they've been around the word of God, they've been taught the word of God, that they have been around God's people for years. They know the scriptures. They're compliant. They're obedient. They do what we ask them to do. They don't complain about coming to the church. They don't complain about reading the Bible. They don't complain about what you're doing right now at home. They, they would check the boxes of the things that you ask them to believe about God, but they do not know God. And they're not known by God. They're not been restored to him. They're not his son or daughter yet. How many of our children are in that state? And may I challenge us to never be content with them being in that state. May may we as their parents, may we as their aunts and uncles and as their friends and as their mentors, as their disciples, never be content with them just being respectful and being good moral kids and doing the right thing and, and being at church, being familiar with the Bible. May we long for them to actually be known by God and to know God. May we long for them to take what's outside of them and internalize it, to believe it in their heart. It's so important for us to remember that every person must be born again. Every human being must be born again. Even the ones who are born into Christian families, that are born into Christian community, we all need to be born again. We all need to have a change of heart. We all need to be reconciled to God. There comes a point in every child's life who has grown up in a Christian family where they have to ask, do I believe this? Do I worship this Savior that I've seen my parents worship? Do I hate my sin the way that I see uh, my parents' friends hate their sin? Does my heart long for the Lord like theirs does? And so we see Samuel's childhood, we get a little glimpse of it in those first several verses of this text, but what you see happen in this story as a whole is what I would call Samuel's conversion. I think this is the moment where he comes to that fork in the trail and he goes down the path of belief, the path of internalization of what he has had handed to him. And so you see this cycle happen, right, of God calling Samuel, him, him calling out his name, and there's this cycle that takes place, right? Uh, You see it start, and God audibly calls Samuel by name, it seems, in verse 4. It doesn't explicitly say that, but it says the Lord calls Samuel, and Samuel runs to Eli, goes to his room, his foster dad, and says, Here I am, you called me. That's the, the only category you could have, is that as he heard his name, that it would have come from Eli's room. And so he runs to present himself being obedient as he'd been taught to be. And I would know that's quite the difference from what Eli's actual sons were doing, right? They were out doing God knows what in this evening. Uh, but Eli is there, and or excuse me, Samuel's there, and he runs to Eli's room. And as any parent could tell you uh, who has had children in their home, when a child comes to you in the middle of the night and wakes you up, you're kind of disoriented. And just essentially, my knee-jerk reaction at least is just, hey, go back to sleep, <laughs> go back to bed. This is probably not that important. And you get this vibe that that's what Eli says to him, go back to bed. I didn't call you. And then he lays back down at the end of verse 5. In verse 6, it happens again. The Lord calls again. Of course, Samuel doesn't know that's the Lord yet. But Samuel hears his name, Samuel. And he does this again. He runs to Eli's room. And the same thing happens again. Eli tells him, essentially, go back to bed. And I wonder what was going through Samuel's mind at this point. Maybe wondering if those uh, br- those sons of Eli were playing a practical joke on him, as older siblings like to do sometimes, and, and just trying to, to, to play a joke on him. But he goes back and he lays down again and then it happens a third time. Uh, he hears the voice again. Uh, in verse 8, he hears his name called again and he, he rises faithfully, goes back to, to Eli and he says, here I am, you called me. And it's at this point that Eli, the priest, has fostered down so his name be called and he concludes that it's been, he's being called by God himself. And I appreciate that he gives Samuel some direction about what to do, right? It's like he gives him words to say. In verse 9, he kind of clues Samuel in that this is the Lord who I think is calling you. And next time it happens, I want you to say this. I want you to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then it says that Samuel went and lay down in his place at the end of verse 9. And I, I, I see at this point in the story a shift because we're seeing first God calls Samuel. But what we're going to see now is that, that Samuel calls upon God. That he answers back to God. And so this happens the fourth time. This, this cycle God calls him again. He, it even says, and I don't claim to even know what this means, but it even says that in verse 10 the Lord came and stood there. And he calls like he had before Samuel. Samuel. I want you to imagine being Samuel in that moment. We don't know how old he was, but being Samuel in that moment and hearing that voice and having confidence based on what Eli said, that this is God himself speaking to me. This is God himself addressing me, calling me. Samuel uses the words that Eli had given to him and he says, speak for your servant hears. And I so appreciate the, the prayer of this young boy as he answers back to God. It's, it's because it's as if he's calling upon God now. He's casting himself upon God. He, he addresses God personally, right? He speaks directly to him, telling him, speak to me, God. And he, he postures himself in this short little prayer as a servant of God. He calls himself your servant, Saying, I, I, I'm not just distant from you anymore, I want to be your servant. And then he implies in his prayer that he wants to obey, he wants to honor God in anything God would ask of him because he says, speak for your servant listens or your servant hears. And this, my friends, I think is a, a turning point in the life of Samuel where what was said in verse 7, I think it's no longer true of him by the time you get to verse 10. I think by verse 10 you see that he does indeed know God. That he is responding to God personally now. He, he's engaging with the Lord himself. He had gotten used to listening to Eli, but now he's listening to God himself. He had gotten used to doing what Eli had asked him to do. And he was glad to do it, but now he's glad to do what God asks him to do. He's taken what was handed to him and he's internalized it for himself and said, I trust this God. It's not just Eli who served this God. I'm going to serve this God. And it's as if he's turning his life over to the Lord saying, Here I am. I'm your servant. Do with me what you will. It's a beautiful thing that we should long to see happen in the life of every child, of every young person that we know. And I want to share a couple words of application from this text and springing out from it for us as we disciple young people, as we, whether they're within our home or within the church uh, or in the community at large, as we think about discipling young people who are in this stage where they're coming up to that point of needing to decide, do I believe this? A few things that I would encourage us to do and to keep in mind. The first one would be this, is that we should pray. We should pray for the conversion of those children, for that boy or girl. We should be people who are praying and praying and praying toward that end. Matthew Henry, I, I quoted him a week or two ago. I wanted to quote him again. He, he has a lot of good thoughts to share on this subject. He said this one time in his writing. He said, When a child is born, there is a candle lighted that must burn to eternity, either in heaven Or hell. The consideration whereof should awaken us to pray with all possible earnestness for the salvation of their souls. I cannot say that any better myself. The fact that these dear children are going to live for eternity. And that you're going to either be restored to God in heaven or rejected by God and punished by him uh, in hell ought to compel us to pray for them. To call upon God over and over again begging him, pleading with him, asking him to save their soul. to, To take what has been handed to them and plant it in their hearts. We should be praying for them because if that is going to happen in the life of a child, if a child is going to truly be born again, it is going to be a work of God, not a work of you. It's going to be something that God works in the life of that child. Just as you see in Samuel's life, his Coming into the physical world was a supernatural act, right? The fact that he was conceived was a supernatural act. It's even more so true that his conversion is an act of God. That Because every person's conversion is an act of God. If they're to be born again, it's because the Spirit of God breathes life into them, not because you've been so convincing or because you've been so persuasive or persistent with them. We should be praying because uh, there is a general call that goes out by God to all people to turn to him and to turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ who died for us and was raised for us. There's this general call that goes out. But from God himself there's also called an effectual call as theologians will call it. This effectual call of God where he actually directly calls individual people in ways that they cannot escape. That they will listen to. That they will obey. And that's what we should long for and be asking God to do. Is not just to call our children in some general vague sense. But God call him. God call her. Like bring her to yourself. So we need to pray for them. We need to be persistent and we need to be patient in our prayers. We need to pray again and again and again. I appreciate in this text that there's at least even in this compressed story a cycle, right? There's a a delay of God finally breaking through, God finally drawing Samuel to himself and seeing Samuel's response. And the same is going to be true in the life of the children that we love, that we disciple, that we care for. That's usually it's going to be a process of months and years of calling them to repent, calling them to Believe in Christ until He actually does. So we should pray for children's conversion. Then I would note this also as a practical word of application we should guide children through conversion. We should be of help to them as they come to this fork in the trail. We should be the, the ones, we talked about the first week how we are forward scouts in the wilderness of time. And we help them come along to the places we've already gone. We need to help them as they come to this to know what to say, know how to respond, what's going on. He doesn't just send Samuel back to his room to figure it out himself. But he even puts words into the mouth of Samuel and says, pray this way. This is what I think is happening in your life. Pray this way to God. And, I, and if that is going to happen, if that change is going to happen in a child's life, he's usually going to use people like us who are investing in that child to help them know how to respond, to help them know what to say, help them know how to pray to the Lord. And so we need to help guide them. We don't want to manipulate children into conversion. We don't want to pressure them into conversion We don't want to embarrass them or force them towards conversion. But we also don't want to be passive. We don't just want to kind of twiddle our thumbs and and say, I'm just going to pray for you and let you figure it out yourself. We need to help guide them, help them know what steps to take. We need to be careful, I would say also, as Christian parents, as Christian disciples, when we're engaging with young people, we need to be careful to not, even in how we speak to them, to assume that they're already converted, to assume that they're already born again, that they're already believing in Christ. This is so easy for us to do, sometimes even accidentally, where we will speak to them as if they're forgiven as if they're united with God when they really are not, when they've given no voice to that, they've given no expression of repentance or no expression of faith. We need to be careful about doing that and not assuming that they've already been born again when they've given no voice to that at all. Practically speaking and being their guide through conversion, we need to be willing to tell them when they read stories like this story of Samuel to not expect to hear some audible voice of God. I think I was like that as a boy sometimes just waiting for the heavens to open up and and God to descend and him to speak from the heavens to call me to faith. We need to teach our children to respond to the words of God that are in this book. Uh, They speak clearly than any voice you're going to hear from heaven. The words that God has given us where he commands us the voice of God speaks to the children of our life and says, repent and believe the gospel. That's what we need to call our children to respond to and not just to wait for some unbelievable experience but to faithfully respond to the commands of God in his word. And when they come to a point where they are starting to express a desire to trust Christ themselves, we should try to help even give words to them to say, Help guide them in prayer of how to respond to the Lord. Give them language to use. There is no quote-unquote sinner's prayer in the Bible. There's no script that we just hand to our kid that's some like magic sayings that they say to God to turn their life over to him, to say, I want to be yours, I want to be forgiven. But there is words that we should give to them. We are called in the Bible to repent and to believe in the gospel. And so we can tell our kids... Pray with me, pray after me even. Father, I am sorry for my sins. Father, please forgive me. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me. Please receive me as your son or daughter. We can help them form thoughts like that, that express the heart of someone who's desiring to be born again, who's desiring to be forgiven. And so we should give words to them. And I would say when we start to see that take place in their life, when there seems to be a true expression of repentance and faith, we should celebrate that. We should, we should, uh, we should be thankful and let them know our thankfulness of, of how we're seeing them respond to the Lord. But we need to be careful to not flatter them when they do that. Uh, to not uh, just puff them up as if that's, hey, that's a good work that you just did that God is so pleased and so impressed by. We need to celebrate their response. but We need to call them to an ongoing life of repentance and faith. To know that what they just did, that those words they just expressed are the life they're to live now. They're, they're going down this new section of trail as a follower of God. As an aside, a few other things I want to say at this age, middle schoolers, it's so important for us as they come to this pivot point in life, this fork in their spiritual trail, we need, even if they're not yet born again, even if they're not choosing to trust in Christ yet, we do need at this age more than we ever have before. We need to help them see that the scriptures are true. That the word of God is true. Whether they yet see it as such. Whether they yet respond to it as such. Yet they need to be uh, encouraged to believe the scriptures. Not just because mom said so or because dad said so. But because God said so. Because God, this is God's word to us. We need to be proactive in speaking to those uh, young people who are in that stage of life. Helping them see the truthfulness of scripture. Helping them see how it accurately reflects the world that they live in. And the realities that they're walking around in. And the things that they're dealing with in life. We need to even, I would say, proactively address other worldviews that they're going to start coming across things they're going to hear from friends things they're going to hear in the media things they're going to hear in school we need to help them see the the limitations and the weaknesses and the lies that are embedded in those other worldviews we need to be proactive with them and then we need to be reactive with children as well as children's intellect are as growing as they enter into adolescence, they're going to ask hard questions. There's parts of the scriptures that are going to be hard for them to digest, hard for them to believe, and we need to be willing to try to answer those questions, to be willing to engage with them and say that God speaks to this thing and that we're called to trust in his word. But more than that, more than handing them a Christian worldview and trying to convince them that the Bible is true, more than that, we need to remember that we as their parents, we as their disciples, we are calling them to a person. That we're calling them not just to believe a set of beliefs, not just to believe doctrine, but to trust in a person, to be reconciled to a person. I appreciate something that, that Marcos had shared on social media last week that he had heard from someone else uh, where, where this author said that we, don't, we should not ever look at doctrine. We should look through doctrine to see God. And I think that is so true with children at this age that we want them to know doctrine. We want them to know the truth of Scripture. We want them to internalize that though because we want them to actually know the Savior it points to, to actually rest their soul upon Him. And so may we never stop at just convincing them the Bible is true but pointing them to the Savior that that it directs us to. My last aside would be this, that if and when children do come to this point of conversion, where they come to this place of, of trust in the Lord, we need to encourage them to be baptized as followers of Jesus. We don't have bar mitzvahs. We don't have bat mitzvahs. you are called to be baptized. Uh, We would love, we're even a few weeks from now going to have a baptism class. We'd love to have young or older folks uh, come to that class. If you've placed your trust in Christ, you've turned from your sins, we'd love to talk with you about that because it is is something that's better than any bar mitzvah. Any bar mitzvah is a baptism because it shows you've been united with Christ. To the children who may have been listening this morning, I I want you to listen now uh, if you're able to. I want you to know from this text the story of Samuel. I want you to know that God places a call upon you to respond to him. Uh, You have had the privilege, it seems, by listening to this, of of growing up in a Christian family and being entrusted to Christian parents or grandparents. But God wants, I want you to hear from God, just as Samuel did. I want you to hear God calling your name. I I want you to hear him saying, to use my children's name as an example, Caleb, Caleb. Emma, Emma, or Charlie, Charlie. And I want you to hear God calling you to engage with him, to know him, to be received by him, to become his son or daughter, uh, to be right with God himself. God wants, you to, and wants to know you not just as so-and-so's son or so-and-so's daughter. He wants to know you as his own son, as his own daughter. And through the work of Jesus, you can do just that. I'd encourage you to talk to your mom and dad if that is a desire of your heart to, to turn your life to Christ, to be forgiven. Talk to them. Ask them to pray with you about that today and in the days ahead. Because the one thing that we talked about, a bar mitzvah being a, becoming a son of commandment, a bat mitzvah becoming a daughter of commandment, something that is better than that by far is becoming a son of God, becoming a daughter of God. That is my prayer for my children, for the children of our church, and I pray that we can join together in that. So I'm going to pray towards that end now. Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for the, the narrative of Samuel. And his childhood, and this time of his conversion, where you came and you called him specifically, you called him personally, I pray that you would do that work in the life of the children of our church. That they would even today, not audibly from heaven, but within their hearts, that they would hear you calling their name. That they would hear you calling them to be restored to you, to be received back by you. May they be willing to confess their sins and place their trust in your son who died for them, was raised for them, and who can make them your son or daughter. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.